Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb, a historian of Judaism and the director of Jewish studies at the Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago. And I'm Modia Silva, a psychotherapist and author in Toronto, Canada. And as you may know, if you've listened to a previous episode, we are going Torah portion by Torah portion through the entire Torah, looking for messages in Musar, or the Jewish discipline of ethical self-improvement. And we are now on the Midah, or character trait of patience, and we are now reading the Torah portion of Toldot in the book of Genesis. And Moja, uh, as you and I noted in our brief talk, we usually talk briefly before we start recording, sometimes it's a real challenge to match a character trait, to find lessons for a character trait from a parsha. And if you think it's hard now in Genesis, <laughs> just just wait until you get to all the Levitical prescriptions and proscriptions in the book of Leviticus. Um, but that's okay. It's a bracing challenge. And sometimes in life, it's hard to match what your challenges are with the character trait that you're focusing on. Or sometimes you're prepared to focus on one trait and challenges come up that uh, that confront another trait of yours altogether. I find uh, today's Torah portion of Toldot, which really holds the story of the mature post-binding of Isaac, Isaac, uh, and tells the story of his... Uh, marriage to Rebecca, the birth of the twins, uh, Yaakov and Esav. And there's a lot in this Torah portion, but I'm not sure there's a lot of patience. What do you think? Well, I also think there's not a lot of patience. And so I was actually thinking about it. And we're going to get into a little bit about what Rabbi Leffen says in Cheshbon HaNefesh about patience. But just as a, maybe as a precursor to it, um, he gives a um a progression to say that we go from worry and fear to pain and suffering which is which requires then requires patience and so i was thinking about the worry and fear part and i agree with you it's like i was sitting here thinking oh we're going to we're going to run this podcast this morning and this pasha doesn't jump out with a lot of patience teachings and then worry and fear started to rise in my chest it's like, I have an ego, and there are going to be people listening to this podcast, and they're going to think less of me because I don't have anything that clever to say, right? Or um, or worry that I might like scrape the bottom of the barrel and come up with something that I think is useful, and all our listeners go, that that has nothing to do with what you said you were going to talk about. Okay, but you're a therapist, and you know how to confront uh, or, or gently um, deal with feelings that arise in the body, right? So once that happened, what did you do? Well, I have a standard practice in any case when I see patients, when I see clients. Um, and so that's what I did. I ground myself. So I learned some techniques in, in something called the Alexander Technique, which is um, essentially a rehabilitation technique that was created in the 1800s by this Australian guy, Alexander, where um, 
in the techniques, you learn how to walk, how to sit, how to stand, um, how to carry yourself. And so I sit in my chair and I notice that worry and fear is coming. And then I just take a breath, feel my feet on the ground so that I'm grounding myself, feel my tush in the seat. And then I push my back into the back of the chair so that I know that I've got my own back. And that's a calming grounding mechanism. It it uh, it takes you from sympathetic to parasympathetic. And then I've created more space. I've slowed down essentially and created more space to allow understanding, wisdom, knowledge to 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 find a door in so that patients can uh, can be grown. I don't think they knew about the Alexander technique in the ancient Near East. <laughs> at least judging by today's Torah portion. And I'm thinking, of course, about the famous verse uh, in chapter 25, um, just at the beginning of the Parsha, uh, uh, Rebecca is unable to conceive. And verse 21 says, Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord responded to his plea and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. But the children struggled in her womb, and she said, Im ken lama which is a, a plaintive cry of suffering. Um, it's translated in the translation I'm looking at, the JPS Tanakh. If so, why do I exist? In other words, this, this suffering is so, this woman's in badly in need of the Alexander technique. Mm. If I'm going to suffer like this. She seems to be saying, I would rather not exist. But then she inquires directly of God, and God responds to her and says, two nations are in your womb. Two separate peoples shall issue from your body. One people shall be mightier than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, um, this... Uh, is sort of a prelude to millennia of conflict between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. It's, um, uh, we can get into that a little bit later. But I'm also drawn in this particular passage to the fact that you don't have to be a pregnant woman to have an existential crisis. I mean, hers is one of acute physical pain. But we, all human beings, have a similar struggle, which is the nefesh ha'elokit and the nefesh ha'behemit. There are two nations struggling within us all the time, the one that is descended from the divine and the one that is rooted in the animal organism that we inhabit. Is this part of the problem that we have with patience? Or maybe a better question, because I don't like to ambush you so much, is like, what do you think about this famous lament of Rebecca's and what does it tell you? Um, I, for me, maybe I'm going to sound like a broken record today on this, on this episode, but I think it's all about pace, like slowing down or speeding up. And I think about, you know, we're still in the midst and will be for months, probably, unfortunately, of a major conflict, a war. And, um, Everyone around me is knee-jerk reacting. By now, everyone's gone into their echo chamber and figured out what side they're on. And But 
but no one can slow down enough to hear the other. And if we stay in the chapter that you mentioned, and I think Rebecca is foreshadowing or, or maybe a first example, the second example is in that same chapter 25, verse 30, when Asav comes back and says to Jacob, let me gulp, I pray you, of this red, red pottage, this 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 lentil dish, because I'm faint. And and I want to read in a moment something that Rav Samson Raphael Hirsch says about that. But it reminds me of what I sometimes tell myself when I start to speed up too much and I find my I'm losing my patience, that I stop and I say, halt. I don't know if you know this, H-A-L-T. You ask yourself, am I hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? Halt. And if I'm any one of those, do not knee-jerk enter into a some sort of conflict or do anything that you know is going to take you down a bad path. Let your nefesh behemoth, let your animal soul win out over your. Oh my God! I'm all of those all the time. <laughs> I can't ever respond to anything if what you're saying is true. But it's it's interesting what you're saying because because Asav is tired and hungry. Um, and mm -hmm. he is completely in the grip of the nefesh habemit, the animal soul, right? He's really almost a personification of the animal soul. He's a skillful hunter. He lives out in the wild. Um, he is everything that Jacob is not. Jacob is a person who dwells in ten at tents, and what we're and you know is supposedly a student, right? A student of Torah, right? And what we're learning here is that this is one personality that's not well integrated in a way. What's what issues yeah. from Rebecca is not well integrated. Correct. And I think if you come back to the existential question that you posed a few minutes ago, the integration or the, the maybe the lesson is that the integration for us is our nefesh behema, our animal desires, our physical urges with our spiritual desires, our nefesh elokit. And that's our job is to constantly look for ways to unify them. But you're right. It's um, So I was saying, Ram Samson Raphael Hirsch, in that line when it says, let me gulp of this red, red pottage, he says it reminds him, meaning it reminds Asaph, of, of the blood of a gasping, dying animal that delights his eye when his, oh, when his, when, sorry, when his, when his arrow has found its mark. Right, give me that red stuff. Give me the blood, so that I can, um, I can revel in the physical world. Essentially, that's amazing. And his his mastery over mortality. Right, he he, it gives him life to shed the blood of another uh, of another living thing. Well, more than yeah, more than that, like the Midrash tells us, right, that when he comes back and asks for that porridge, that uh, lentil dish, that um, the lentil dish was made because it was the shiver of his grandfather, Abraham, Abraham. And so everyone's in the room mourning the loss of a great patriarch. And this guy comes back and he can't even move into that space. He's just out for himself. And it's all about f satisfying physical urges. And if you're all about satisfying physical urges, you're not going to be patient about it. Right. You cannot be patient about it, which is why he gulps. Let me right. gulp. Like he just wants it fast and he wants it now. And um, so 
it actually reminds me we had homework in the last step at the end of the last episode which was to see if we could um, find times when we were going to be a shomer be a guard to not let our impatience come out and um so i just want to share maybe one example of how that played out for me this past week that i was um i was in my car on a long drive yesterday coming home and one of my daughters called and said i need to be at such and such a place at eight o'clock didn't you tell me this same story last week? oh no that was driving to school but it's always the same it kind of thing it's the same kid it's the same kid <laughs> <laughs> and i knew that she actually didn't need to be there till nine o'clock but I also know that she's somewhat impatient. Oh, sorry. She is someone who is working on developing her patience. Oh, good. Good. Reframing. Good. Yes. <laughs> um, and so I was able in the car to not to push my feet down and ground myself because then I'd have pushed on the gas and gone like 150 kilometers an hour. But um, to really slow down, put myself in, like feel myself in the seat. And then just say, you may want to be there at eight. I know you don't need to be there till nine. I will do my best. And when I'm closer to home, I'll call you. And if it doesn't look like it's going to meet your needs, we'll find another solution for you. Very good. Yeah. And then I called back and she was like, yeah, I can be there like 830. It's fine. It's like, it doesn't matter. So I think also for someone who's developing patients, like we all are, whatever run of the ladder we're on, you just need space and time to be able to step back and introduce wisdom and knowledge so that it's not just an emotional reaction. I'm so glad that you said that, that you brought up spaciousness. As you may know, my, my PhD dissertation was on the binding of Isaac and the centrality of the story uh, in the shaping of Jewish exegetical interpretive habits and on Jewish memory. And the patriarch Isaac has sort of become a role model for me, not because he is a flawless character, he's, he's not, but because he survives trauma. And he not only survives it, he becomes a phenomenally successful agriculturalist, a loving husband, a doting, if uh, flawed father, uh, and he has a deep relationship with God. But the most important lesson that I think he gives us from a sort of almost Jungian symbolic perspective is the way that he redigs his father's wells. He resettles on his father's land. He redigs his father's wells, which have been stopped up by the Philistines. And then he digs his own wells. And if I can, I want to read uh, beginning in chapter 26, verse 17. Because to me, um, spaciousness plays a key role in the development of patience. And Isaac approaches this conflict of the Philistines with patience. Here's, here's how it goes, starting in 26, verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the Wadi of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac dug anew the wells which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, in which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham's death. And he gave them the same names that his father had given them. So he's not only living on his father's land, he's really honoring his father in a way by unblocking a flow that's been occluded since his father's death. 
But when Isaac's servants digging in the wadi found there were there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. He named that well Essek because they contended with him. And when they dug another well, they disputed over that one also. And he named it Sitna, which is um, strife or really hatred. He moved from there and dug yet another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called it Rehovot, saying, now at last the Lord has granted us ample space to increase in the land. Even though the wells are stopped up when they produce water, the Philistines uh, uh, claim them as their own. Isaac, just he doesn't confront. There is not a military confrontation. He moves, and he moves until he finds water that they don't quarrel over. So the, the, so the progression is contention, strife, and spaciousness. And this is a hugely valuable progression for cultivating patience. I just want to say a little bit about more about it, and then I want to hear your reaction. So anytime something comes up that challenges uh, our patience, there's a feeling of strife right? There's a feeling of, of, uh, of a friction, of an incompatibility that makes us, that sparks our impatience. And then there's a contention. This reminds me of what Menach, Reb Menachem and Alephen calls wasted grief. It's the desire for things to be different than they are and a fighting against what's going on. But finally, if we can cultivate a sense of spaciousness, even in the midst of conflict, whether it's inner or outer, then we can say, now at last, the Lord has granted us ample space to increase in the land. Keep moving. Don't answer to the strife or contentiousness. Open up space and uh, patience will fill that space. So that's kind of, this is one of my favorite um, passages regarding the life of Isaac, because it shows the way that he not only um, lives on the ground in the land and can unstop physical wells, but it talks about how he unblocks the flow of his father's energy and doesn't contend when contention arises over it. He patiently moves until spaciousness is evident. What do you think about that? I think that's beautiful. I love that. <clears throat> I love that wording, that phrasing that you have about blocking a flow and, and releasing a flow is um, it's lovely. It makes me think, I do couples therapy as well as individual therapy. And um, one of the things I have my couples do is comes from Harville Hendricks. It's a, it's a dialogue um, protocol that recognizes that someone is in pain. They have contention, they come see me, the strife comes out, the pain comes out instantly. And then if you use this imago therapy, um, Harville Hendricks model, you have them tell a story. One person tells the story, the other person listens. And what they actually end up doing is saying, this is my pain, but now I want to tell you what the emotion is that is attached to that pain. And then I want to be honest and tell you what story I fabricated based on the action that you did or whatever, which, which may, which is a story, which is a narrative that I've now created in my head that is now going to tie itself, bind itself to the emotion and, 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 um, and create some continuity of suffering. 
So I love this notion of, okay, and then the next stages in the process of Harvill Hendricks is now I've done that, how do we unblock? And, wow. and the unblocking begins with the person who is listening, repeating back everything that they've heard. So to show the other that they've actually heard them. And I, I, th I think it's lovely. I, I love this digging the well story because that it maybe that is the one major story in this week's Pasha around patience because Isaac digs the well and then his adversaries come along and say, Hey, that's my well. And he's like, okay, whatever. I'll go dig another well. And right. that's another well. And right. I, I don't know, maybe it was my projection onto him, but it does seem like he digs those wells with patience. Yes. And the, the imagery of the well continues through Isaac's encounter with Avimelech. They're swearing uh, an oath of peace. And that same day that Isaac and Abimelech swear an oath of peace, that they conclude a kind of treaty where they each recognize the other's claim to a certain amount of land and that they're in league with each other. Then Isaac's servants dig another well, and they kind of hit a gusher uh, in chapter 26, verse 31. Early in the morning, they, meaning Isaac and Abimelech, exchanged oaths. Isaac then bade them farewell, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, we found water. He named it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we have to remember that in this part of the world, uh, water was a scarce and precious commodity. At certain times of the year, it rarely, if ever, fell from the sky. It had to be found in the groundwater. And when it was found, there could be contention over it precisely because it was a precious resource. And Isaac was not native to the land. Uh, well, he was native, but his father was not native to the land that he was living in. So... Uh, it's really interesting that the summation of this patient process that he goes through is uh, uh, results in the city of Beersheba. And Beersheba can either mean the well of the oath or the seventh well, uh -huh. um, because Abraham digs three, Isaac digs three, and then this is the seventh, and seven is the number of completion. So patience with the Philistine results in peace with Abimelech, and this results in completion. So it goes uh, strife, contention, spaciousness, completeness. And if we think about Isaac's journey that way, and then we're about to get to him being old and being deceived by Rebecca and Jacob. But if we think about Isaac's path from being put on the altar by his father to making peace and finding spaciousness, this is a journey in one on one level or another that we all have to make. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. I want to, I want to read a story to you. Great. And see what you think about it. Excellent. So, <clears throat> so the Chofetz Chaim comes about, I don't know, 3000 years after Isaac, something like that. Right. Um, so the Chofetz Chaim's first wife passed away and he remarried and Sukkot was coming and he was going to go out and build a sukkah. So he builds the sukkah, and then the new Rebetzin, his new wife, comes out, looks at the sukkah, and points to another spot and says, 
Rabbi Yisrael Meir, wouldn't the sukkah be better there? And without a word, the Chafetz Chaim dismantles the sukkah, reconstructs it in another spot. And after the sukkah was completed, the Rebetzin comes out again, surveys the scene, turns to the Chafetz Chaim and says, Rabbi Yisrael Meir, I think you were right. The sukkah actually belongs in the first location, which happened to have been the location that he built the sukkah in for many, many years before he met his second wife. But again, without a word, the Chafetz Chaim dismantles and reconstructs the sukkah in the original spot. Do you have that level of patience with in your sukkah? Freaking lutely not. <laughs> not ever. I mean, this is so one of the one of the uh since you're a marital counselor, I'm gonna ask you for some free marital counseling right here. One of one of the challenges to my patients is um is my wife's habits of thought and speech. It's not her fault. It's how she is. And it's really important to try to be patient with somebody when they're being how they are. But there are two things that she does that uh, in, in interactions like this, that, that try my patience. One is she will start a sentence in the middle of the thought as if I have been in her head the entire time. And the other is she will say, um, uh, subject and verb, but then stop the sentence before she gets to the object. Thinking, I guess, that it's so self-evident what she's talking about that she needn't expend the energy and breath to finish the sentence. So she'll say, um, can you go to the store? Uh, I think we need some... Uh, yes, we need some what? Oh, sorry, I was waiting. Yeah, you thought that. I froze up, didn't you? But no, this is my <laughs> life, Moja. This is my life. And and it creates a kind of claustrophobia in me when a sentence isn't finished or so that's an example of the of the latter of 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 how um the spark of impatience is lit into a fire for in me for some reason when somebody doesn't finish a sentence but the other is if she says so can you do that for me and i'm like do what and she'll say go to the store but she hasn't said go to this like i she thinks i've been in her head and that i know now this is a habit that I've observed in her siblings and one of her parents. So it's almost an ingrained pattern. And I, this causes um, impatience in me. And I think I'm telling you this story because, uh, you know, this is a challenge of deep hearing. It's not her, you know, sure, she could finish a sentence. She could, she could do subject, verb, object, wouldn't kill her. But it wouldn't kill me to say, I'm sorry, um, what's that you need me to get at the store? So this relational thing of hearing and repeating back is um, super important. And I think the story you're telling suggests uh, that this deep hearing goes needs to go beyond words. And we don't often do that. We live in our heads and we live in our vocabulary. Yeah. And I want to actually push back a tiny bit because um, one thing that you just said, which is it wouldn't kill her to finish a sentence. So when you say that, you're actually taking away your own responsibility to manage your patients. Mm. Because what if, I, I, I mean, I know, I know your wife, she's lovely. She can finish mm -hmm. a sentence, but, um, but what if you actually were with someone who couldn't finish a sentence? They just, wow. their, their brain was um, injured, maybe in a concussion or something. And now can you generate a degree of patience that you can't generate with your spouse? Are you suggesting that my wife is brain damaged? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. 
I'm just kidding. The other thing that I do that irritates her is an overcompensation for this. So she'll say, today I went and I'll go to the store mm. because I'm worried she's not going to finish the sentence. I want to help her. And she goes, can you, can you just let me tell the story? And I go, yes, yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh -huh. So I tend to, to try to help him, but in all the wrong ways. Right, right. There's a beautiful, um, what's his name? Ramdas. Richard Halp Halpin? What was his uh, name? Albert? Halpin. Halpin? Halpin? Something like that. Halpert. 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 Richard Halpert, who became Ramdas. Yeah. Uh, he had a stroke. He was stroked, as he says. And he, there's this beautiful video documentary of his recovery from his stroke, from being stroked. And he had a speech therapist come to help him regain his ability to speak. And he took forever to finish. And then she would jump in and go, sentences? And he'd, <laughs> and he'd turn to her and point and just laugh. Because it's like, oh, even you don't have patience. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really awesome. Uh, it, it's... Uh, one challenge in deeply intimate relationships is uh, is giving spaciousness to the other person, even when you think you know what they're going to do or say. It's a kind of control freakishness that I think we all can be guilty of a little bit. And speaking of control freakishness, I look at uh, sort of the concluding narrative of uh, Parshat Toldot, and it really involves... Um, a great deal of uh, impatience, impatience and lack of trust on Rebecca's part that what God has said to her will happen, will happen. And, and so it happens with subterfuge. Uh, Re uh, Rebecca helps Jacob disguise himself as Esav so that uh, Jacob gets the blessing of the eldest. And because, uh, uh, you know, as the saying goes, Asav sells his birthright for a mess of pottage, as it was said in the olden times. Uh, he is too impatient, um, too famished, too in the grip of animal appetites um, to even care what's happening. Um, but but Rebecca's and perhaps Jacob. Jacob's impatience to see this through at the end of Isaac's life, at least this is the way I read it in light of what we're talking about this week, the Midah of patience, this results both in uh, Jacob receiving the birthright and in generation upon generation of strife and animosity. Uh, do Are we on safe ground wondering what might have happened if Jacob and Rebecca had been patient and had not forced the hand of this birthright in the way that they did, is there how much predestination and then how much free will shapes how much patience we have is, I guess, my question to you. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Do you have an answer? I... I, that's a really unfair question. So so here's my thinking about it. And you can you can think about your answer while I say so to me. One key question uh, that Rebecca ties together um, from the beginning to the end of this Parsha is the existential question of why we exist. If life is this way, why do we exist? And we are never sure how much free will we have. The rabbis say 
um, free will is given, but everything is foreseen. Um, and, and sometimes like Rebecca, we try to force fate into the channel that we believe it should be in. And my, my feeling and my experience is that when we are impatient that way, when Moses strikes the rock, when he only has to touch it, when, uh, Rebecca, uh, uses subterfuge to make sure that Jacob gets Isaac's blessing. There are numerous, uh, examples in Torah of, of people getting impatient and subverting the will of God, even when they seem to be obeying it. My feeling is that when we try to force things, and this is my experience across many fields of endeavor too, when we try to force things, we may get what we want, but we have changed forever um, how, we, how much of a blessing it will be to have gotten it. When you force things, you change your fate, even if you get what you want. That's what I think. I, th I, I think so, too. You change your fate because you change yourself, but you also change the environment around you. Yes. And so, yes. And so you change other people. So everything's changed. Yeah. And I think that's where, if we go back now to Rabbi Leffin, he talks about three things. He talks about God's perfection is glorified in three ways. And this is how he opens his section on patience. And then he says it's ability, wisdom, and kindness. And the kindness is granted without any ulterior motive. So I, I, I found it really interesting that he doesn't jump in and start talking about patience. He actually starts talking about the antidote to patience, which is ability, wisdom, and kindness. <clears throat> and so it made me look at Rav Avigdor Miller. Um, mm -hmm. Avigdor Miller came to America, but he learned in the Slobodka Masai Yeshiva uh, for many years. Um, so his all his thinking really is essentially Slobodka. It's it's being um, but selimelukim. How do how do we develop ourselves in the image of the divine? And he talks about wisdom as one of the three th three antidotes to patience. And said and and he draws a line from Mishlei from Proverbs chapter three nineteen that says uh, God founded the earth with wisdom. God established the heavens with understanding. And he says that because he says that wisdom is the spiritual spark of life and the light of intellect. And so reading between his lines, it sounds like what he's saying is, yes, thought, uh, sorry, speech and body sensations. And yeah, all of that stuff is important. But if you really want to develop patience, you have to be able to step back and employ some wisdom, employ some something from your mind, something from your brain. And so in your example, when your wife doesn't finish the sentence, or in my example, when my 16-year-old calls and demonstrates her impatience, we've got to, you keep saying this, we've got to be able to put space between the match and the fuse. We've got to be able yeah. to pull back so that not so that we can diffuse and calm things down, but so that we can allow the intellect to kick in and, and come to a rational uh, decision on what our next step is. I love that. I tend to think about it um, maybe somewhat less um, intellectually or, or cerebrally. I, I think about it in terms of um, being able 
to so when we put a space between the match and the fuse part of what we are doing is cultivating witness consciousness in other words we tend to think that what happens to us is happening to us that that the nerve endings and the fibers of our emotional life when they get tickled it's happening to us but deep within us and many religious traditions point to this there is the witness the ensouled uh entity that is experiencing existence and consciousness through the physical body but the physical body in some key respects many religious traditions hold is not us and that if we focus on the witness consciousness that can provide the space between the match and the fuse because we can say this moment is my teacher we can say if we're thrown off balance if we get impatient this moment has come to teach me something what is it what is it teaching me and that is an essential kind of witness consciousness that removes you from the center of every story that you find yourself in and i think that's a critical component of patience i i think so too i think what you just said though this the second part is because someone could hear the term witness consciousness and just think okay i'm just going to be a fly on the wall pretty detached from everything Right. But what you're saying is, no, it requires discernment as well. So I'm going to pull back important. to be a witness, but I want to discern. So it makes me think of a book that we probably shouldn't recommend here on this particular podcast. It's, <laughs> it's uh, by Mark Manson, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fudge. Oh, yes, yes. Don't have to finish that word. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> where he kind of says the same thing. He says, it's not about not caring it's about having discernment as to what you care about. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I love that. Uh, and I think not having that kind of discernment leads to a kind of blindness. And of course, at the end of his life, Isaac is blind. There are many beautiful Midrashic stories about why he might be blind, what kind of blindness it is. Is it is it literal physical blindness? Was it caused by tears of angels falling into his eyes as he was about to be slaughtered by his father? Or is it just the blindness of favoring one child so explicitly and so wildly over the other? Uh, but the blindness is the result of, of not having discernment. In If we put it in the context that you, Moja, have just been talking about it, we all have that kind of blindness. And we can all favor not only different children, but different aspects of ourselves and lack discernment that way. And for me, teaching moments about patients have to do with stuff, relationships, or situations that I'd rather not deal with. But those kind of moments are my teacher. And that's part of what I learned from today's Parsha. That's amazing. I think that's maybe a great way to end. Uh, and maybe a bit of homework then around what oh, you yes. said. Homework. Yeah. So blindness and discernment. Maybe the homework then for this week <clears throat> is we're going to lose our patience. Well, I am for sure. I guarantee you I am. Right. I guarantee you this week. Yeah. yeah. Maybe in the next two minutes, I might lose it. <laughs> if I don't shut up. Okay. <laughs> um so maybe it's not to keep a guard like we did last week so that you don't lose it, but it's to notice as soon as you lose it, how to ask yourself, how was I blind? In what way was I blind just now? I, I will have ample opportunity to practice that. And I think that's a great assignment. Okay, cool. All right. Well, 
this was really interesting. And I learned a lot more about patience from Parshat Toldot than I thought I was going to, thanks to you. Yeah, and thanks to you too. It was uh, it was going to be a tough a tough episode, but it wasn't. Yeah. It was no, a, a treat. It wasn't. Yeah. So I want to thank our listeners and ask them uh, to please recommend this podcast to others who you think might enjoy and benefit from it. And just in case you forgot its name, uh, you have been listening to Self-Control Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb. And I'm Modia Silva. See you next week. <laughs>